0: Thank <sweak> Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Aka I'm Christine Becker.
1: And I'm Michael Kackman.
0: And we have reached the December episode. Uh, we have. Yeah, here at Notre Dame. We are in, uh, we got one more week of class and then finals. So we are kind of currently in the near brain dead status, deep in the weeds. I think.
2: Deep, deep, deep in the weeds.
0: Yeah, we actually tried to chat before starting recording here about what clever thing, you know, we should talk about at the top here. And we've got nothing, like...
1: I'm so completely not holding. It's yeah. Just... Yeah. It's, you know. So welcome. Yeah. Fortunately, we have good content. To exactly. Share
0: with you. Luckily, we have have things already recorded <laughs> that we. Uh, other
1: people's content. Exactly.
0: Other smart people. Um, yeah, we've got a couple exciting things. First of all, our uh, usual Cinema Journal Presents interview. I talked to Riel Nowitzki about research, in particular on Latin American cinema. So that was a really fun interview. And then we have a very special new feature. Uh, we're going to get you a bunch of interviews across the next year, I guess, uh, involving this project.
1: Yes. SCMS is starting an oral history. History Project. They're calling it SCMS Field Notes. What we're going to do is we're going to give you a little taste and then the rest of it will be available linked through to the SCMS website. Yep. And the first one is Patrice Petro, former president of SCMS, is interviewing Thomas Elsasser.
0: Yeah, Thomas Elsasser. So essentially, we've got Thomas Elsasser. That's right, right here on Acamedia. Right, only here. So and the SMS website, but you'll hear it here first, exclusive. We have an exclusive with Thomas Elsasser. This
1: is like this. You know, there's a Star Wars.
0: uh, I'm. (laughs)
1: See, this is what See, happens. See, yeah, here, this
0: is a perfect. Example. No, it's
1: the the you know they've got the trailer that people were like the sleeping teaser out trailer. to go watch the teaser trailer. Right. This is like the teaser trailer, but it's way
0: better. Right. I was going to say something clever there, and seriously, just left. insert clever. What saying? we need is
1: like one of those Mad Libs versions of our right. of our uh, podcast, so that you yeah. could just be like insert something smart here, insert clever, here. clever
0: pop culture reference to yeah. Star Wars trailer reaction. Yeah, that's what we got. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so first up, we've got my interview with Riel Nowitzki. Let's take a listen. Riel Nowitzki is an assistant professor in the Department of Theater and Film Studies at the University of Georgia. Her scholarship takes comparative approaches to Latin American cinema with a focus on the global circulation of film stars and genres and the relationships between cinema and print culture. Her essays have appeared in Cinema Journal, Screen, the Journal of Latin American Cultural Studies, and a number of anthologies. Uh, Riel Nowitzki, thank you for joining ECHO Media. Thank you for having me. All right, well, we've got a lot to talk to you about. You've got a lot of really interesting work, and I wanted to start with actually the most current work in Cinema Journal. So uh, issue 54.1, you are part of the In Focus section. And that section looks at Latin American film research in the 21st century. Uh, And your offering is titled Reconsidering the Archive, Digitization in the Latin American Film Historiography. And I think this is really a vital read, especially for those, of course, studying Latin American film history. You lay out a wealth of online resources for accessing films and periodicals. But even more broadly, I'm especially fascinated by what your essay raises about the challenges raised by these digitization practices, both in the terms of the study of Latin American cinema specifically, but also just media studies research In general, you got a really great line near the end uh, where you write, "Even as digitized collections and institutional collaborations increasingly transcend national borders, we must not confuse digitization with democratization or with frictionless access to the past." So you can tell us a little bit more uh, about what you mean by that? Sure. Yeah, I was just
3: kind of to start off. I was really thrilled to be part of this dossier that um, Ana Lopez and Dolores Tierney um, put together and the piece kind of came out of thinking about some of my, how some of my own work processes have changed um, in the past couple of years as these resources increasingly become available and as far as the question of democratization and how its relationship to these new projects is actually quite complex. I was thinking of basically an irony um, that came up when I was first working extensively with um, with digital newspapers. I was asked to write a piece about the Brazilian reception of Danish star Asta Nielsen. Um, so I was working with this really wonderful resource, the World Newspaper Archive, which is a project of the Center for Research Libraries. And so, you know basically, CRL took it upon themselves to kind of try to fill a preservation gap in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and South Asia, but this is a subscription-only database. So the question then emerges, how many people in these, um, in these regions can actually access um, their collections, which is really wonderful. They've pooled the resources of many U.S. institutions that have these rare periodicals, but how many people there can actually um, use these newspapers? So that was kind of the question that emerged in my mind who has access to digital archives as is the case with any archive what's left out and then I guess the other question about sort of access to the past and how that's shaped by the interface itself I've been thinking a lot about OCR or optical character recognition and how that has really changed at least my relationship to working with historical documents because First of all, it's an imperfect technology. Um, So again, with any archive, there's always the potential to miss things. There's always the potential for discoveries to fall through the cracks. Um, But also that it's something that kind of reifies our approach. If we're searching for a particular star's name, as I was, or if we're searching for a film title or, you know, and even a thematic keyword, what we see will then be very much shaped by that.
0: Especially found intriguing that OCR point about, of course, then it kind of favors text over images and then labels and, and things like that, that that would then almost in some way delimit um, our access to those things. And then also your, the one of the ending points you have in the article about how just sort of this larger question of if... We have all this stuff online. Does that in fact isolate us as researchers? Do we sit in our, you know, at our computers and our homes and access this material? Does this kind of shy us away from actually going to other locations? And I thought that was a really compelling point and something that we all have to think about, the consequences of, of this kind of research.
3: Yes, and definitely one of the things that I think is so that makes the Latin American case so useful for thinking about these issues is that there's so much material in these archives that maybe hasn't been microfilmed or that hasn't been cataloged and you really need to go and make connections with the people that work there and kind of show them that you're serious about doing this research. And that's really a process that generates a lot of these discoveries and a lot of these finds. And it also, it seems to me, at least I don't know, just in terms of, you know, the time pressures that are a factor in any academic's life in terms of generating publications, I think there is a temptation to kind of take the path of least resistance a little bit. Um, I was, actually arguing with a colleague of mine and she said you know well any serious scholar will go and look at the physical documents look at the microfilm or look at the newspapers as well and I you know I said I'm not so sure I think it depends what the time pressures are it depends you know how how quickly one's tenure clock is ticking and there are just a lot of factors that kind of make me worry that um, the convenience that it offers might have some drawbacks as well along with the advantages
0: yeah, and even money, you raise the idea, does this undermine the availability of grants? If someone can say, well, you can just access that online, we don't have to actually send you to Brazil or Mexico.
3: It's hard to say. I mean, you know, this actually came up in this in this argument, and she was sort of saying, you know, do um, do evaluation committees really have that close of a grasp on what's available? You know, she, she thought I was being a bit paranoid. But I think it is, you know, this is a moment when um, funding, especially for the humanities, is very much um, kind of a fraught issue. The NEH and other funding agencies are cutting back to some extent. So I, I do think that it could become an issue.
0: And I would agree. Just my experience of uh, I've been on a number of undergraduate grant committees and and specifically um, grants to go overseas. And one of the first questions is always, is this material they can access at home? Is this an excuse to go to Italy rather Mm -hmm. than doing legitimate research? You know, and in some cases, of course, that is a legitimate question. But giving people who are, you know, where money is already tight, giving them another reason to not put forth more money is problematic. Well, I actually want to turn now to then your own research and some of your own experiences in accessing these materials, because um, you've written a very successful dissertation. It won the 2014 uh, SEMS Dissertation Award. Uh, It was titled Sensationalism, Cinema, and the Popular Press in Mexico and Brazil, 1905 to 1930. Uh, And it focuses on early Mexican and Brazilian crime and adventure films and how the violence they depicted, you write, rendered spectacularly visible the social tensions of national modernization projects. So you had to tackle these very research, challenges of accessing this historical material from other countries, and I presume your success there was part of what uh, earned you the award and impressed the committee. So what materials did you access to research your dissertation? How did you get to them? Um, okay, this is
3: you know so much fun to talk about the different archives I visited, In terms of sort of just beginning to get access and to lay the groundwork for access, as I mentioned, these personal connections and institutional connections become incredibly important. Um, I think especially in Latin America or in other parts of the so-called global South, so often these materials that you want to access are held in private hands. And often, you know, it's kind of a small world and people know each other. Um, So it was helpful for me, even though I I wouldn't say I'm a natural networker to kind of try to jump in, contact archivists that I'd met briefly, um, and then kind of meet other people through these networks who could point me to resources and kind of help grease these institutional relationships that are very important in getting funding as well. And so the first uh, place I visited, the first research trip I took was to Brazil in in 2010. Um, So I started off, I think, at the most logical place, which is the Cinemateca Brasileira in Sao Paulo. There I mostly worked with an absolutely wonderful collection of this pioneering Brazilian film journalist Pedro Lima. Um, who really played a key role in kind of creating a specialized discourse on film uh, in the 20s. And I actually used to have a photograph of him above my desk, um, just because I worked so much with this collection that I, I almost felt that I knew this person. So that collection, he worked in film journalism for several decades. It has everything from press clippings... To the correspondence that he maintained um, with filmmakers who were working all over Brazil in the 20s, still photographs, basically anything you can imagine. And just sort of working with the archives of both the national libraries in Mexico and Brazil, a really helpful source was um, at the National Archive in Mexico. There are a number of scripts held with the Copyright Office for films that no longer exist. So I relied on that as well as just periodicals. I'm not sure if this sounds kind of dull. You know, this is kind of the the nuts and bolts of archival research and, you know, which I find very fascinating. I'm not sure if it's really coming to life the way I'm describing it. Um, But those were some of the collections that I worked with. And in terms of just, you know, getting to know scholars and archivists and they would kind of point me um, towards these resources and I kind of took it from there.
0: Were people eager to help you and kind of point you to other things and make connections? Because I think this is, as a researcher myself, and I, you know, I my, my I wrote a book on 1950s TV and it involved interviews, and I'm always it's always difficult to sort of start those relationships, and you know, ask the right questions is also another issue of like there might be things out there, and if you don't ask the right question, you might not get access to it. So did you find at least you had sort of a helpful network that started to develop in that regard?
3: I found people to be, especially in Brazil, to be incredibly welcoming and helpful. There is, you know, when you kind of are working outside your cultural context, there are sometimes cultural norms um, that can present a problem. And there was one private collection, uh, one of the first film studios in Brazil, Cinegia. the founder's daughter. The archive is really in her head. It's a private archive. It's her collection and her baby. And I. that was an instance in which I kind of failed to create that rapport. And I think, you know, in the U.S., you send an email to follow up. If someone doesn't reply to your email, you send a follow up and say, oh, did you receive my email? Or I don't know. So that that, that was a counterexample in which, um, you know, by insisting too much, you know, I couldn't quite navigate that relationship. So that was my one kind of archival failure. You know, I'm not really sure what was in that collection. But the people who worked at public archives were all incredibly generous, really. Um, so I did kind of end up relying quite a bit on, on public archives, and maybe next time I'll be a bit a bit more
0: savvy. Right. So you access all this material. Did you go into this research with an argument in mind, or did it emerge after you looked at all the material. Yeah, I
3: wouldn't say that I had a, a defined argument kind of going in. I specifically wanted to look at these intriguing parallels that I saw um, between silent film production in Mexico and Brazil. I initially struck by is that sort of the first big box office hits and some of the first kind of commercially successful narrative films in both countries were these re- reconstructions of these infamous crimes. So in Brazil, 1908, what, that's viewed as the first feature film made in Brazil, Usa Stranguladores, or The Stranglers, um, was a reconstruction of this case that happened, um, this robbery and murder that happened in the Italian immigrant community in Rio, um, and sort of drew on these anxieties about um, these massive migratory flows that were being encouraged by the government really to kind of reshape Brazil um, and deliberately to try to whiten Brazil. Um, So all these kind of social changes that were generated by immigration and by urbanization were kind of brought to a flashpoint by this case that created this media spectacle and then became a film a couple of years later. And in the Mexican case, again, it's this film that I look at, um, El Automo de Gris, or The Great Automobile, is basically speaking to the kind of crisis of state legitimacy that was generated by the Mexican Revolution, because it's based on a case of these robbers who dressed as soldiers and were rumored to work with the complicity of these high-ranking officials. So kind of, again, this was a case that sort of brought into focus kind of the most salient questions um, at the time. And so, you know, even though the political contexts are quite different, I was kind of struck by this correspondence and this way in which trying to sort of narrativize real-life violence was sort of the most immediately profitable thing that these filmmakers could do. So that was kind of the the spark that made me curious. And then I ended up looking, sort of moving into the 1920s and looking at the production of kind of wholly fictional films. And so the argument that emerged, I would say, I mean, the research question that I wanted to answer is... um, Sort of why were these images of violence so compelling, or kind of all of these ills of modernization that became kind of thematic elements? Of course, this is something that's familiar to sort of silent era scholars who look a lot about at serial films and these kind of incredibly violent um, adventure melodramas and technological disaster. Um, but it seems particularly suggestive, I think, that, for example, in Brazil, when, you know, massive railroad construction is going on in the late 19th and early 20th century, if you want to show that your nation is modern, why do you show a train accident? Or what is this fasc- fascination with physical violence, with technological disaster? And what I, the hypothesis that I developed from all of this sort of focuses on the way in which producing visible violence as a sign of modernization was something that was at work in the visual culture of both these nations. So hopefully that that answers your question. I think, you know, I'm still still struggling a little
0: bit. Well, actually, because I was going to ask you, are you developing that into a book? Then what do you then develop differently or extend or dig deeper into or whatever into the book? I
3: think the comparative focus... Is something that I think is a strength of the book, but it's also something that makes it, I think, more difficult to market. You know, I think the question is sort of a Mexicanist won't necessarily be interested in Brazilian cinema, um, and vice versa. And I think part of this, the challenge in articulating, you know, the project is because I see it offering different things to different audiences in terms of the emergence of violence and physical peril as a theme as scholars have commented you know scholars of silent cinema and modernity it speaks very much to the ontology of cinema for example Films that deal with actual cases and actual murders, or the Mexican film that I talked about, El Otomo de Gris, has a supposedly real execution sequence in it. So what do these sort of specific relationships to real-life deaths or real-life executions, um, what can that tell us about what cinema and photography were thought to offer the spectator in terms of being... Um, more real than other media, or more timely. So that's kind of one set of questions. And then the other set is, you know, what do these representations of violence kind of tell us about? the specific profile or character of modernization in Latin America. And I guess what I'm trying to suggest is that in making visible violence in this way, there's a tacit acknowledgement of how violent the processes of modernization are in these two countries for different reasons. They have very different political histories. you know. So I think film study scholars might be more interested in the first set of questions and scholars of Latin American cultural history might be more interested in the second set of questions, and I do see them as really interlinked, Um, but I think the challenge is trying to articulate the connection in a way that is simple and clear to people in both disciplines, and so, as you can tell, I, I very much have my work cut out for me.
0: The other perspective that I think that some of our listeners might appreciate hearing, um, and especially some of our grad student listeners, you've made such a successful transition then from graduate school, uh, getting your PhD at UC Berkeley, and now on the tenure track at University of Georgia. Um, and so I was wondering if you had any advice then for those hitting the job market in the next year or two, just sort of things that you went through that you would uh, you know be interested in sharing with, uh, especially again, our, our grad student listeners.
3: I found one piece of advice very helpful from my dissertation chair, Kristen, whistle and she said when you're trying to publish always aim for the very top journals don't necessarily feel that you kind of have to work your way up in terms of you know send your best work but you know go right for those um, kind of big names and if you're successful then that will be very helpful I guess one other piece of advice I'm not sure if this speaks directly to the job market per se but I think one thing that's helpful for graduate students and junior scholars in terms of kind of creating connections and creating an intellectual community and sort of rethinking a bit I guess what we usually mean by networking which is sort of not necessarily you know my favorite part of the job but thinking about sort of being able to draw connections um, between people's work and put people in touch thinking of yourself as kind of an active participant within a network of scholars rather than someone who is sort of looking for mentorship or advice in a very hierarchical way. And I think that's sort of one good way for graduate students to start trying to think about what it will mean to work as faculty in terms of kind of generating these relationships and being able to um, think outside the role of student somewhat. And again, something that I'm kind of still struggling with. But thinking about how one's work can speak to a broader audience and kind of trying to get out of that dissertation um, tunnel vision. And just because that's something that you'll need when teaching students, when publishing, um, how do you kind of think big instead of Thinking micro, I think, is is very helpful to begin thinking about, and will make that sort of transition to from dissertation to book easier. So I think that's something if you can think about it a few years earlier, that is very helpful.
0: Great, and I think it's a really good final point because that's actually one thing we hope we're facilitating with the Media Podcast is to get people like you on to talk about your work, to kind of spark you know thoughts in other people's work and kind of share ideas. So we really appreciate you uh, having taken the time to to sit down with us and talk about your work.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: That was a great interview, Chris. You know, one of the things that I love about that is that here she is talking about this really amazing work that's essentially reconstructing films by looking through old copyright records and. Um, and she's just dismissing it, like, "Oh, you know, I you know Nobody's interested in this. This is so boring." And blah, blah. and it's like, "Oh my god, this is such amazing, yeah. amazingly creative uh, historical research."
0: And I love to hear those stories about research processes. Yeah. Um, and and you know, and, and she is saying, like, "You know, does anyone out there care about this?" But this is what yeah. we do, and I really love to hear those those stories and and the the things you run into, and especially the aspects of. You know, researching other cultures and mm-hmm. you know issues you have to be aware of with that. I mean, those to me, that's really fun yeah. stuff. Um, And that's also then a a good setup for our next segment, uh, because we are going to turn now to the very first of the SCMS Field Notes interviews, which then give you a really unprecedented look into the research and uh, teaching histories of some legendary scholars. So let me set up, first of all, what this Field Notes project is. Um, So it's an oral history project, presents audio and video interviews with foundational media study scholars, and reading here from the project's description materials, um, the of Field Notes is that it will help foster knowledge of and interest in the diverse and dynamic series of developments that that have shaped the fields of film and media studies through the years, inspiring thought about the relationship of the past to the present and future of the discipline. So the Field Notes team uh, wants to dig through two primary interrelated threads of information in these interviews. The first one is uh, the unique and specific ways in which film and media studies become part of the university as researched, debated, and teachable. And then the second one is the unique and specific ways that key individuals in their own careers, as teachers, scholars, public intellectuals, have shaped and been shaped by the range of variables that have made the field possible. So that's all sort of very fancy sounding, but it's basically about sitting down some legendary scholars, asking them about what they've seen um, across the the history of the field and um, about their own work. So this is just right in the Accomedia wheelhouse, so we're very excited about this project. The first interviews were conducted at the SCMS conference this year, and they're going to be ongoing at future conferences and media studies events. And then we at Media are going to get a chance to offer you excerpts from some of these interviews um, in this episode and future episodes. And then you'll be able to access the full uncut versions of these interviews on SCMS's website. So, so far... um, the Field Notes team has logged interviews with Thomas L Linda Williams, James Naramore, Janet Steiger, and Gertrude Koch. And today we have for you an excerpt from the Thomas L. Mm-hmm. interview, uh, which was conducted at SCMS in Seattle by Patrice Petro.
1: Let's take a listen to this. I'll leave the introduction to Patrice Petro, but I will just say that this was really terrific to listen to. It's such a great glimpse into the history of our field from someone who has been involved in some terrific programs and worked with, as he says, three generations of, of students now.
4: Hello, my name is Patrice Petro. Today is Friday, March 21st. Um, we're sitting in a suite in the uh, Sheraton Hotel in Seattle at the SCMS conference in 2014 in Seattle. With me is Thomas Alsasser. Um, He is a prolific and award-winning scholar of film studies whose work extends beyond the study of film to include television studies, new media studies, art and cultural memory, system theory, and telecommunications. He has written extensively and eloquently on such topics as melodrama, memory, European and Hollywood cinema, media archaeology, the avant-garde, and the archive. While Alsasser is perhaps best known for his studies on almost every period of German film history, from early film to the cinema of the Weimar Republic to the new German cinema, he has also written and co-edited numerous books, including, most recently, those on early cinema, television, and new media. Among his most recent books are Film Theory and Introduction Through the Census from 2010, The Persistence of Hollywood from 2012, and German Cinema, Terror and Trauma, Cultural Memory since 1945, which came out in 2013. So let's begin. In your 2008 distinguished career, at the time called the Lifetime Membership Award, but in that 2008 distinguished career address, you said, and I quote, My career as a film scholar has often seemed based on a series of misunderstandings, Mostly productive ones, to be sure, but in true melodramatic fashion, out of sync, too soon, too late, the right thing at the wrong place, or vice versa. So my first question is, prefaced by this, and to say, it's well known that you came of age as a cinephile during the 1960s, founding and running a film magazine, Monogram, and writing one of the earliest major articles on Hollywood auteurs. What got you interested in becoming a film and media scholar?
2: Thank you, uh, Patrice. Um, glad to be here. You're right that at a certain point I was thinking of my career as what I now call parapraxes. In other words, successful failures. But thinking about it again and going back a little bit into my biography, uh, it's also uh, a structured schizophrenia because I started watching films on a regular basis quite early. When I was 14, uh, a year after my maternal grandfather died because my job became to be the chaperone of my now uh, widowed grandmother. And my grandmother had one great passion, which was the cinema. But she had a, a special passion for Burt Lancaster. So, We saw a lot of films with Bert Lancaster together, which were way beyond my age, but certainly totally fascinated me, From Here to Eternity, Greatest Show on Earth, and many, many others. But my parents were also cinephiles. They were members of a film club that met every Friday. And so when on Sunday night and Wednesday, I went with my grandmother, on Friday night, I went with my parents, but my parents were absolutely bourgeois, middle class film consumers who adored Rossellini, mm. Bresson, Bergman, and many of the other names from the mid-50s, because this all happened around 56, 57. I also got, as a birthday present, a subscription to the only serious German film magazine at the time, Film Critique of which it turned out I was one of the, the longest subscribing members right to the bitter end in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. So I grew up with two apparently conflicting cinematic traditions. On the one hand, a love of Hollywood movies, melodramas, uh, weepies, action films, and uh, a deep respect for European cinema at the same time.
4: Fascinating. Um, I wondered if you could describe your first teaching job at a university. Your, your, your doctorate was in comparative literature, um, and I wonder, your first teaching job, where was it? How did you get it? What was the first film or media studies course you taught, and what could you tell us about that?
2: I studied at the University of Sussex in England, um, starting in 1963, after breaking off uh, a study of uh, Russian and uh, Polish literature in Heidelberg University in 1962. And at Sussex, I continued with my serious interest in the cinema by uh, um, participating in a film club and then starting a film magazine. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But in 1970, Three, I was hired by the University of East Anglia in comparative literature because, as you said, my PhD, uh, my formation was in English and French and comparative literature. But since I was still, at that point, actively involved in the, f- in the film-critical uh, community in, in Britain, in London as well, I was very much motivated to introduce film as an uh, academic subject at my new home, at the University of East Anglia, and received backing for this from the British Film Institute, mm-hmm. from its uh, education department, which at the time was run by Ed Buscombe and uh, Peter Wallen. So, uh, we concocted a scheme whereby the so-called new universities, and East Anglia was one of the new universities in Britain that it founded in the 60s, uh, were able to draw on funds that the British Film Institute is making available to hire people teaching film at university level. Uh, and to do this, or give seed money, as it was called, for three years on the assumption that the university would then take over this particular position. Um, at that time, I had already begun to explore what it would mean to teach film uh, in a university setting through a combination that probably was quite typical for the time, namely novel into film. In other words, very much with regard to uh, the sensibilities and orthodoxies of uh, literature studies and seeing how one could actually talk about adaptation without in a priori assuming that a film adaptation of a novel must be worse than the novel. So that was the first, if you like, um, um, counterintuitive or counterinstitutional move that I made was through a very conventional and, to my mind, not particularly productive topic uh, novel into film to introduce a new agenda. Uh, but when we then uh, hired our first uh, um, film scholars, Charles Barr, uh, we very quickly moved to establishing film studies in its own right. And we were extremely successful in building up an undergraduate program within English and American Studies. Because that was the point, uh, mid-70s, when students just loved to talk about movies and had sufficient background in the movies to talk about them seriously and want to be challenged also at the theoretical level.
4: Could you discuss the dynamics of film and media publishing during the early phase of your career? You already men- mentioned being the sub- longest subscriber to film critique, but what were the possibilities for, f- for publishing in and film, and-, and how did this shape what you wrote about?
2: Well, at the University of Sussex in 1963, we ran a film club. And for this film club, probably because I was used to going to film clubs in Germany, where they had program notes, mm-hmm. I initiated writing program notes for the films we were showing in the film club. And I drew quite heavily on the two sources that I had available or that I was familiar with. One was Film Critique and the other was Cahiers du Cinema. I had by then become a fairly regular reader of Cahiers du Cinema and also of its uh, British equivalent, namely movie magazine. So we were plundering quite shamelessly um, those journals in providing notes for our viewers. After a few years, I thought this was rather... First of all, I then began to write my own notes for the films rather than simply uh, cutting and pasting quotes from, from others. And I thought this is rather ephemeral. I put a lot of work in that, and it was always painful to see people on the way out throwing my my text into the waste paper basket. So I thought, well, there must be a way of preserving this. So what I decided is to start a, f- a film magazine called the Brighton Film Review, which was basically a listings magazine for Brighton, not just for the University Film Club, for, but all the cinemas in, in Brighton. And we had small, and this was before listings magazines like Time Out ever appeared. Uh, So we had a listings part with caption reviews of the films that were shown in town, uh, but we used the second half of the magazine to write longer articles. So my first publications actually took place uh, around the magazine, and they were uh, in a duplicated form, uh, a ronier type or a running it off a a drum. uh, And uh, I was lucky with this because I was uh, subletting a room in a house in a kind of commune that was run by the Trotskyist faction of uh, the Labour Party in Brighton. And they had acquired this, this rather exotic machine, a Gestetner machine, for their own pamphlets and so on. So I appropriated that machine as my publication tool.
4: Well, we're coming up to the end of our time here. Um, and i I guess well uh, the last question um, it's a big question, and you can uh, you don't need to give a a big answer but i and you've just uh, i've just come from a panel where you were discussing all these issues in in quite a lot of detail but where do you feel the future of university film and media sco- study and scholarship is headed um, how do you think what what is the role of film theory and cinematic thinking? Um, today. And um, I'm just wondering, as you looking forward, you're now retired from the University of Amsterdam, they have a mandatory retirement, uh, right? Uh, you're not certainly retired from the field at all. Um, but I'm wondering what you see as the future directions or where we're headed?
2: Well, the first answer is I'm sitting back and letting it happen. I'm very happy for Generate new generations take over and I again I'm very privileged that when I come to something like a size cinema media studies annual conference I have at least three generations of my students presenting papers and so It's up to them basically they take it wherever they want to take it. They have my backing. They have my blessing You know and uh, in that sense, I'm extremely grateful to be here as a grandfather rather than as an Oedipal father So that relieves a certain burden of having to defend a particular ideology or particular paradigm. Looking at it from a slightly less biographical, autobiographical perspective, I think we have huge challenges. I think on the one hand, we are, as film studies, besieged by two major challenges. One challenge is that we've been too successful in under, at the undergraduate level which has meant that we have lost out or have missed out on resources in many many of the universities and have been amalgamated and have been the first victims of a, a downsizing of the humanities quite generally uh, And furthermore, because we are such an open field, we have given a lot of people the opportunities to teach film without actually being formed in film studies. Anybody thinks now they can teach film. And on the one hand, that's good because uh, we have all these missionaries out there doing the good work. On the other hand, we have no control over how, how it's taught and we have very little grip on a kind of disciplinary backbone where we can, you know, call people to order and say, look, you know, it's better done this way or than that way. Um, we've also, obviously, and again, that's part of uh, uh, the price for success, we have lost uh, the coherence of the field as having one particular genealogy. That is the classic genealogy of uh, Uh, the theorists, uh, German, French, and American in the 20s, and then Bazin as a key figure, and then Metz and uh, screen studies and so on. You know, that particular line, which allowed us both to be uh, in constant dialogue with our predecessors, and at the same time, pushed certain questions back to the forefront over and over again, in the way that a discipline does, uh, that was denied to us in the in the '80s and nineties and uh, it was uh, it let a thousand flowers bloom or whatever and uh, What I sense is that the field is under the the field is consolidating itself and and this is interestingly enough under the challenge of the so called digital, which means that a lot of us are now either as it were, um, corralling the wagons and retrenching in redefining what we think the cinema is and we're quite happy to say, maybe the cinema is over, not necessarily dead, but it is now like other disciplines. It deals with the past and there's nothing wrong with that. And it actually helps to put a kind of closure on it. And once you have closure, you have a new grip on what is essential to the field, the discipline, and so on. And uh, uh, as you know, there are people very respected in our field who proceed precisely on, along those lines. There are others who say, yes, the cinema is over, and I want to be on the other side. I want to be on the digital side. This is where the action is, this is where new things are. And I don't care if cinema is, just, is you know, interesting, but it's, it's, it's a speciality, it's a niche like Middle English or, you know, whatever the humanities have, you know, like uh, studying medieval manuscripts or uh, Byzantine icons, you know, then you study cinema the way they do their particular field. Um, and they're perfectly happy with that because what they need from the cinema, they find now re-articulated, reworked in digital culture in one form or another. And, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. Uh, i belong to those precisely perhaps because i've been through so many paradigms and have seen both their value but also their transitoriness that i think um it may be worthwhile to actually think about it in those longer terms that i was presenting uh, earlier today where i was looking at uh, the uh, relatively new phenomenon namely how uh, film and philosophy now relate to each other after uh, philosophy having ignored the cinema for the best part of a 100 years. There are now a lot of philosophers who are very interested in, in film and cinema. And at the same time, there are a lot of film s- scholars who uh, are interested in philosophy and actually think that the dilemmas and uh, uh, deadlocks of film theory can be solved by moving to f- film philosophy. And of course, there divides open up between Anglo-Saxon pragmatists and uh, uh, um, analytical philosophers and continental philosophers more uh, metaphysically inclined or deconstructivist inclined. So I see that as a fruitful development because as long as we don't say we're not going to talk to the other side, I think it's a very uh, positive and potentially extremely productive dialogue that's about to take place, which doesn't mean I want to give that a particular priority. I think uh, other movements that are extremely important is the globalization of film studies. In other words, that whether you're in queer studies or whether in European cinema or whether you're into uh, horror as a genre, it's now understood you take a view of global cinema and not of your national cinema or even exclusively of Hollywood.
4: Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of this very busy day to talk with me. Um, Thanks very much. Thank you. Now, that was
1: just a small piece of of this interview. It was an hour long, and if you go to our website at www.acca-media.org, You'll find links to the rest of it at SCMS. There's some really great stuff in here. Uh, we get to, to hear a bit of uh, Thomas L. Sasser's reflections on some of the major programs uh, that were so central to the forming of media studies and film studies in the U.S. There's some really nice discussion of some of his early work on melodrama that continues to be uh, cited and used pretty extensively. Some really great stuff, so I would encourage you to, to follow follow the links through and give it a listen.
0: And we also wanted to recognize the team behind the Field Notes project. So the committee members are Barb Klinger, Patrice Petro, and Heidi Wasson. Uh, Heidi spearheads the committee, and Klinger and Petro help make decisions, consult, and arrange interviews. Uh, Wasson also has two graduate students helping her out with tech work and transcripts. So that's Matthew Oganowski and Beatrice Bartholomew. And then Andrew Miller heads up the AV team that helps record the interviews. And Aviva Dove Vibon will be the one posting the materials to the SCMS website. And finally, this has all been made possible by a grant supporting a a research team called Artemis which stands for advanced research team on the history and epistemology of moving images and sounds and uh, which is based in Canada and a really great website I think you should check out I, I didn't know about it and I saw the website and there's really excellent links there to uh, lectures and and more information on on media
1: yeah good stuff I mean we're a we're a media studies organization and it's about time that we actually documented our own history a little bit. Right.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be end up being a really important collection of material to understand the history, the field, the evolution of it, and of course the you know more behind these individual scholars. I think this is a really excellent idea.
1: And as always, if you are interested in participating in this, if you'd like to to help out, if you uh, want to suggest an interview, then. Uh, feel free to check in with us or check in with Heidi Wasson directly.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good idea. And to check in with us, of course, our email address is info at aka-media.org. We have a Twitter feed at akka underscore media, and we have a Facebook page, which you can find at our website, which is acca mediaorg
1: Come visit us. We're also looking for feedback in a Bit more—I don't know if we should say statistically significant, but perhaps a more aggregated kind of way.
0: Yeah, we'd like to get a little more feedback from you all about what you think of Aka Media. We want to keep doing the things that you like, and maybe work on some of the things you don't like or want more of or less of. And we need feedback, though we don't hear all that much from uh, from our listeners, except for the occasional tweet saying "good job" or a particular episode you like. So we wanted to get something a little more systematic um, as far as reaction. So we are going to float out. A a survey very soon.
1: You'll find links to it on our website, as well as links to it from our Facebook page. But we have some really exciting news.
0: Yeah. This is big. There, I mean, we, this got is... In, we got incentive for you yeah. to actually fill us yeah. out. Because of course, I mean, in terms of a pure altruistic stance, we want you to fill it out well, because course. you care about Accomedia. But there's want... something in it for you. We, yeah, it's a big surprise here. The so. first
1: 50 people who complete a survey will win.
0: They'll be entered into. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. We don't have we don't fifty, only have 50, of, these. 50 of these. No, yeah. you will be entered into a drawing to win a brand
1: new car,
0: a new car from Acamedia. Media yeah. is giving away a car. We are, but you have to fill out the survey, the, the, or else the nature
1: of the car. I mean, well, I mean, it's well,
0: it's be, it's we can't be... give away any details yeah, yet, right? You but know, it's
1: going to be pretty. It's going to be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, right. So, but you have to fill out the survey, right? Yes, you don't do. have a survey, don't have a chance at the right. car. If Quid you don't well.
1: like those old commercials on uh, Channel 12 in Portland, Oregon when I was growing up. If you don't come see me today, I can't save you any money. If you don't enter, you can't win.
0: There you go. So yeah, we'll have that information out about how you can fill out the survey and maybe get a car. Maybe. Very soon. So we'll have that on our social media outlets and our website. It could happen.
1: Acamedia is produced with the support of Isla at the University of Notre Dame, as well as a DERF grant from Denison University,
0: and a grant from SCMS.
1: We are, as always, eternally grateful for the work of our co-conspirators and co-producers, Bill Kirkpatrick from Denison University and Todd Thompson uh, at the University of Texas.
0: And also we have help from our intern at Denison University, Jordan Wilson. And finally, we'd like to thank the participants of this episode, Riel Nowitzki. And then thank you, Thomas Sasser,
1: And Patrice Petroff.
0: All right. We'll be back in January next year. See you right. next year, Happy kids. Happy holidays.